I'm lucky. I'm a writer. I'm a reporter. I can go and have this amazing experience that shows me what's happening. I'm going to share that with you. I'm going to share with you this amazing experience I had. And we can both then talk about that's the route to doing it. Welcome back, everybody. Rich Baker, founder of Collector Responsibility, here today with another edition of the Sustainable Ambassador Podcast. This week, I am so happy to be joined by veteran journalist and writer Adam Mintner, who has been telling the story of waste for more than 20 years. He is a regular contributor to Bloomberg and has published two books on the topic, Junkyard Planet and Secondhand. Through this episode, Adam and I will be talking a little bit about waste and how he sees it in the current state of affairs, but more to how to tell the story of waste. Welcome to the show, Adam. It's it's great to reconnect after so many years and have a talk yeah. about the work that you're doing. I guess as a starting point, would you mind introducing yourself and what led you into telling the story of waste? Adam Minter, and I am uh, primarily these days known as a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Um, I'm an author getting started on a third book here uh, over the coming months. Great. How did I get involved in waste? Um, I was literally born in and around a a junkyard. My family, uh, dating back to the early 20th century, was involved in scrap peddling. And so some of my earliest memories are literally wandering around the scrapyard with my dad or my grandmother, seeing the stuff. So that makes an impression. I like telling stories about the scrapyard more than I liked actually working in the scrapyard. And so Mm. I transitioned into being a journalist and uh, in 2002 moved to Shanghai. What was the opening point or the transition for journalism? Did you study it or did you just like have a knack for telling it because you'd been around it and playing around the, in the junkyard? There was no there was no point where I said, I'm going to do this. It was I was working for the family business and I, I there was a new magazine in town and I just pitched them some articles. You know, I thought it'd be a fun thing to do on the side. And it became this. Most people that are separating the green bin in Minnesota yeah. or in Missouri, my home state, they think that that's on its own is recycling. What's actually what is waste and what is the economy? Mm-hmm of waste that you've seen? Tend to think there's these universal definitions of waste. You know, oh, a used bottle, that's waste. Um, And we very much put the definition on the object. But in fact, the definition really belongs to us. Um, and it's why I reject sort of this notion that there's universal definitions of waste. When I was living in Shanghai, you know, um, I was covering, you know, the recycling industry down to the, you know, down to the waste peddler on the street. And some of those things that a waste peddler, I would say, throw out into my trash. I'd say, this is waste. The peddler would come by and say, that's not waste. That's a commodity that I can sell. Right. And and I right. think that's really what it comes down to is, is the definition comes down to the user. And ultimately, it's an economic definition. Um, mm. uh, you know, if it can't be used, if something cannot be made from it, it goes in your trash bin. It doesn't go into your recycling bin. Right. But, right, you know, right. I've spent a lot of time in West Africa since I uh, last uh, lived in China. And, and, and it was it was it was great for me um, for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons was so much of the stuff that, you know, my upper middle class neighbors say in, in Minnesota would say, oh, that's that's waste. Put it in the recycling bin. There's guys, you know, I, I know by name who, you know, when they see this stuff in Accra, Ghana or Tamale, Ghana, places I spent time, say, that's not waste. That's something I can resell. I think of it as a spectrum. You know, if we're doing things right, the spectrum gets bigger and bigger and bigger, meaning that there's yeah. stuff getting reused longer and more often and more often. So that's how I think of it. What are the real drivers behind that that material moving from a, a green bin in Missouri yeah. to a manufacturing yeah. site or to a, to, to a next life? Anywhere in the world you go where there's recycling, it's driven by manufacturing. If yeah. something cannot be made from something, it will not be recycled. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's driving the manufacturing? People, people want 
want stuff and they need raw materials for the stuff. And the stuff in your recycling bin is competition for virgin raw materials. Sometimes that competition is purely based on price. You know, the stuff in the recycling bin will provide a lower cost raw material. And sometimes it will be driven by sustainability concerns. You do see in Europe, in the US, more and more manufacturers taking on these sustainability commitments. And one of the ways they, you know, fulfill these sustainability commitments is they'll say, well, we'll, we'll incorporate X percent of recycled content into our packaging. And that sustainability decision is starting to drive markets in recyclable. What are the stories that you're currently following these days? And what's the story that you're trying to tell? We sort of underestimate just how important automobiles are to waste management. And mm. we're about to have this massive transition in how we recycle because you cannot recycle an EV battery yes. the same way that you recycle uh, an internal combustion lead acid battery. And so I'm very interested in that transition because it's an enormous waste management challenge. That's something that I'm, I'm really thinking about and, and it's coming very quick on people. So from a sustainability standpoint, are we going the wrong way on some of these issues right now? Absolutely. You know, from my point of view, um, and some you know, people can disagree with me, but I think the primary um, uh, responsibility of anybody who's interested in sustainability and, and pushing sustainability right now has to be uh, the reduction in carbon emissions. Mm. And nothing generates more carbon emissions and the manufacture of new stuff. And so the longer that we can keep products circulating, that's less pressure in theory to be manufacturing new stuff. You cannot keep the stuff circulating as long if you're if you're shutting down markets, especially in emerging markets where people can't afford the new product price point. And so yeah. the secondhand item provides that to them. So, so from my point of view, yes, um, we should actively be promoting the globalized trade in secondhand goods with the ideas yeah. that it extends the lifespan of the these objects and raw materials. Yeah, we looked at uh, phones in Shanghai, not because of its recyclability, but because something like 85% of them were actually sent back to second and third hand market. And yeah. what you see is the tier one city had like the, the iPhone or the new Xiaomi or the new Huawei, you know, a year later, like, well, I want the new one. And, you know, some second tier, third tier city, you know, they'd be happy to buy these. And that for me was kind of like, okay, there's a heavy trade in this. Nobody is going to take a phone and toss it into a landfill or incinerator that has some reuse value to it. Right. And it doesn't just come down to the phone reuse value. I'm sure you found this in your own research. Okay, the iPhone 7 doesn't work anymore. Hey, that screen though, we can take yep. that screen off it yep. and there's a part we can sell and that's a part we can keep circulating. It's one more screen in theory that doesn't need to be manufactured. We've spent the last 15 minutes going through a few slivers of what's actually happening. How do you try to tell the story of waste and how how is, maybe has that changed over the last 10, 15 years? Okay. I, I really think that the most effective way to tell a story about sustainability is you really need to find the characters through which you can tell that story. Your readers need somebody to identify with. Your readers are never right. going to identify with a plot. You know what I mean? A, a, you know, a, a, a chart. But they may identify with Wahab Muhammad, who is, you know, the Ghanaian American computer trader who I profiled towards the end of, of secondhand. At the beginning of secondhand, you know, I, I I spent time with people who who clean out people's stuff after they die or it's very powerful to show people whose job it is to struggle with other people's waste mm. and and suddenly people identify with it and you can then get the sustainability message there how do you maintain engagement though and i i, I kind of go back to okay you gotta find the character i mean we found yeah. the turtle with the straw in its nose or right, the, sea, right. the seahorse holding on to that q-tip everyone remembers that those pictures going around facebook and social media like and it it did have an immediate 
impact, but then it started to fall off. And yeah, I'm so well, curious, like how, how do you evolve that story? <laughs> I'm going to sound cold-blooded here. I, I would tell you that uh, the sea turtle wasn't much of a character. The sea turtle was an image. I don't believe it's just one story and I don't believe yeah. it's just one book. I mean, yeah. and to me, you know, it's more of a long-term project. And I think there's a real tendency in a Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it is world to say, oh, we need that one image. We need that straw right. in the nose or that young man standing next to a burning computer. That is, that's the destructive way to do it. I think you're going to get bad yeah. information emotional information out there. You have to take the longer view. We do. And I totally agree yeah. with you that yeah. nuance and the long view is there. But in reality, we live in a world where engagement and entertainment intersect oh, yeah. on social media. So how, how do you how do you approach that? One thing I can tell you, I have learned watching my colleagues is if you moralize, you polarize and you don't get anywhere. And secondhand, what I wanted to do is I, I I very much wanted to show people secondhand markets, but I also wanted to show people that they're just buying too much stuff. Mm. And I didn't do it by beating them over the head and, and shaming people. I, you right. know, I opened the book by going to Japan and going to Phoenix, Arizona and going to Minneapolis and spending time with people who clean out homes after uh, somebody has died or, or, you know, and everybody in a developed society goes through that. But by doing that, I, you know, I didn't tell people, oh, you've got too much stuff. I'm saying to the reader, we, we both go through, this is an emotional thing. And so I hear from, I hear from Republicans, I hear from mega types, I hear from people all over the world, you know, who would not take very well to me writing a book about called you have too much stuff. Um, and so, you know, in a TikTok Twitter world where everybody's flaming each other, that's really, it's very tempting to do the opposite. But I will say I have seen you write a few Bloomberg pieces that were like straight into the eye of oh, the yeah. emotions of the moment. And yes, curious, yes, I have. Like, to pick a fight, you're trying to win no. an argument. Like, what, what are you trying to do when you when you do take that chance and you do right. write that article? Yeah, well, here's the thing is, um, you know, we don't live in a black and white world. Or, or you know, as it comes to sustainability, I say, you know, it's it's not a black and green world. It's not. Right. It's, 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 it's all shades of gray. My books and my journalism have been a real effort to to highlight these shades of gray and and to remind people that there are no simple solutions. So probably one of my proudest pieces was one uh, during the straw ban craze. You know, we're gonna we're gonna solve the plastics crisis by by. Mm -hmm banning plastic straws. Um, I'm not a plastic straw advocate. I thought this was um, a real waste of resources because there are so many more um, important sources, starting with, um, I think you and I both know it, fishing gear. I just laid out the data points. That was not a character-driven piece. It was about yeah. 650 words long. And, and um, I still hear about it from people, but it also drove some discussion about fishing gear, which I was really glad about. Well, you know, it's like, I think that's actually the piece that I really remember you like just sticking your finger in the eye mm -hmm. of the, the current public emotion. Cause that was right when it all happened. And yeah. Starbucks is changing their plastic cup. And, you know, it just came out like they're using more plastic to create this lid than when they had the, the straw right. and the lid. And it was just, I'm not saying that the, the intention of doing better is the wrong thing, but sometimes when you do it for the wrong reasons or you do it in an emotional moment, you end up with some bad outcomes. And I think that you oh, kind of sure. pointed that out. Like, look, you're, if you're worried about this, okay, it's great that you're, it's great that young people are worried about straws, but they should also know about this. And that kind yeah. of was like, wait a second, we're on straws right now. What are you yeah. talking about? And, and yeah, exactly right. But, you know, I try to be productive. You can criticize this is, this is not a great use of our time, you know, plastic straws, but what, and, you know, and we laid it out, you know, yeah. here, here are some ways that we can reduce fishing gear, you mm -hmm. know? 
Um, and and there were a lot of people who, I mean, believe me, I, I, I got the fire hose of anger on Twitter and other places and emails. And I remember one person writing to me saying that video of the turtle made me cry. And it's like, well, that's that's fine. You yeah. know, um, here's a better way to help turtles. I yeah. know that actually drove conversation about how can we yeah. how can we assist with this fishing gear? When you're approaching a story, what are some core principles that you try to employ through your craft to make sure that one, you're telling the story correctly, and two, you are moving the ball forward? I I fact check and fact check and fact check. I just want to make sure that we've got everything right. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that can't be underestimated. Maybe that's not the most interesting response, but I really want to make sure that we are we are understanding what the phenomenon is. You know, Mm -hmm. if somebody's throwing out a statistics, you're saying sixty percent of something. I want to know right away what that other forty percent is, and if there's something interesting embedded in it. We tend to look at the big percentage numbers and never look at what's in those smaller percentage numbers. And I'm always digging into those. And so so that's very important to me. Uh, The second thing is, is I I do want to surprise my readers. I mean, you know, uh, because people love that. And if you give them the plot twist, um, I I think you give them something to chew on. I'm starting to write a little bit more directly about climate. And one of the things that I intend to highlight in writing about climate Um, especially in the U.S., is that farmers are affected by it and they know it. And there is, if you start, when you start polling farmers, farmers will tell you, yes, the climate is changing. And that really throws off um, both sides of the debate. To me, when you, when you start pulling something out like that, it starts breaking down some of the walls of debate. You need that plot twist. You need to be able to surprise people. And I am constantly looking for that way to surprise people. Um, And oftentimes that's a person or a group of people. Does the surprise come through when you tell the story and you bust a myth? People love stories about the secret behind your ex. You know, there was... Uh, you know, there was a book called uh, many years ago called The Pencil. Here's about a book called The Pencil. Well, you know what? It was a bestseller, you know, in the many, many printings. I'm looking for that, you know, that kind of story because people really want to know. And that's been what's, I think, one of the things that's kept my career afloat is people bitch and moan about their recycling. Oh, it doesn't really go to the recycling plant, you know? Well, and and then you go into the comment threads, where does it really go? I read, well, you know, if you can give people this, you know, deep dive into this hidden world, people are interested in it, you know? And and I think that's very, very compelling because people, I don't think you can look down on people. And I think there's a lot of that, frankly, in the sustainability community. And if you start looking down on people, they know it. But if you respect your readers, if you go in and say, I'm curious, you're curious. I'm lucky. I'm a writer. I'm a reporter. I can go and have this amazing experience that shows me what's happening. I'm going to share that with you. I'm going to share with you this amazing experience I had, and we can both then talk about it. That's the route to doing it. I feel like we fail to respect their intelligence by giving them the nuance behind all that information. And it might be true, but we never actually show the evidence below it. We just constantly recycle, you know, pun intended, that those figures and those images in hopes that emotional appeal will be enough. And I just, I'm curious, like, is that the mistake? Is that, I I think, I think, I think it's a big mistake, but I, I, I also think um, one of the things I see that's, that's done with a lot of sustainably minded, environmentally minded journalism is it doesn't respect people's decency. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it it comes into it saying, oh, you're a bad person. Um, Not everybody in the environmental community is an educated upper middle class or upper class person who can save a lot of money and, and buy padding 
Patagonia. And a journalism that doesn't highlight this and activism that doesn't highlight this and recognize this is not only going to lose people, but it's going to alienate them because it's going to say, oh, you don't think I'm important. You don't think I'm a good person. And, and, I, think, and I think that's it. And I think when you start shaming people for their intelligence or their consumption habits, when they're doing the best they can, um, you get nowhere. Yeah. If I look at your books, I mean, those are geared very differently than, say, Bloomberg and very differently yeah. than other ways that you could reach these different audiences. Yeah. Do you try and use different mediums to reach different people for different? Is the medium like, do you use a book because you want to focus on one specific thing or one specific story? And then the Bloomberg stuff is more for the business class that, you know, you, you can pump a little bit more regularity into it and, and you can yeah. ship around a little bit. Um, I mean, in many ways, like the books are for me, um, you know, um, one, I mean, it's, it's, it's my project. I do it exactly how I want to do it. Um, it can be personal. Um, and I just go into that thinking, you know, with the next one as well, that, you know, it's a different way of reaching my readers. I mean, the Bloomberg stuff reaches yeah. people in their heads. Uh, there's a little yeah. bit more heart to the books. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think because of that heart, I, I think actually in some ways they, um, that's why there's a potentially a bigger readership and, and a different kind of influence. When I, when I write a Bloomberg column, um, even one that pokes, you know, um, it's yeah. going for people's heads and it's going to policymakers and policymakers. I don't care how polarized they are, you know, when they're on C-SPAN, um, they are, um, tending to think a little bit about, you know, whatever it is, you know, legislative regulatory changes. And so, you know, those tend to be more immediate. Um, the books tend to be more structural. Okay. You see this trend of policymakers are finally getting their head around it. Do you feel compelled to write more towards them now and less away, less towards say consumers? Cause you feel like this might be the way that I can have the best impact. I, I hold off. A lot of times I don't write with great, what they would call pegs. You know, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not something happening in the news right today. I, mine yeah. tend to be a little bit looser, but there is, because of something that happened last week, a really good peg for the sustainability oriented piece that I want to do. I've wanted to do for a couple months now, maybe longer. So I look for that because we do live in that TikTok, Twitter world, yeah. you know, and people, and we know this, I mean, when you get into the nitty gritty of, of doing journalism today, you know, the editors and publishers know, okay, there's people on the search engines looking for information on EV batteries because it's in yeah. the news. Let's get a piece out there. And right. so, you know, I save this stuff up to do that. But it's I think it's very important to be ready for those moments when stuff is in the news and not and, and to be substantive because I think you can have an influence then. So when you're trying to tell the story of really, really big questions, what are a few tips you would give to someone who is trying to do that right now? Like you've, it could be a sustainability professional. It could be an actual someone trying to break through into journalism. Like what are some tips that you would give to someone trying to learn how to tell the story of sustainability? All right. Well, one of the pieces of advice I've, I've talked occasionally to people in the recycling industry about this. And, and the thing that I always tell them is you must be transparent. There's a real tendency in the waste management industry. And I don't, and I don't think this is just the waste management industry, but they've had a lot of bad press over the years. So their tendency is we're going to close the doors to our facilities and not let you in. Or if we let you in, it's going to be on a very, very tight leash. Well, journalists right. aren't stupid and they don't like being kept on a tight leash. And, and so you're going to get more bad stories told about you. You have to open your doors, you know, and if you do that, if you if you do that, I think you're going to start seeing the narrative, um, an accurate narrative. I'm not going to say it's necessarily always going to be the narrative you want, but on balance, right. it, it will be. But you right. you can't you can't stage manage it because reporters are going to find it, figure it out, and your readers or you know whoever the audience is is not going to believe it. You you right. must open the doors, yeah. you know. And that's and and I'm speaking to somebody who spent years as a trade journalist on the recycling industry and got unprecedented access. That access should be given to other reporters. Not 
not just the trade journals. It, it will help overall with the policy discussions and everything. So that that would be my number one piece of advice right. is open the doors. And, and that goes for activists as well. I mean, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of suspicion about activists and what their motivations are. Open the doors, show us your funding, who you mm -hmm. are, well, you know, you got to do that. I mean, you know, yeah. you know, if Fox News comes to your door, you don't win by 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 closing the vest, if you will. Um, yeah. and, then, and then the second piece of advice is something that I've hammered, I guess, maybe too much in, in this conversation is, is from a journalist standpoint, you do need to find the characters and the people um, who are going to talk to you. And that's not just so you can write long form nonfiction and publish books, but also so you have good sources. Um, it it does take time uh, to build up trust. I mean, if I were purely a climate reporter, I mean, yeah. I would be trying to get to, um, I would be working my myself very hard to develop relationships with people in the electricity generation business. Show us who, you know, show your readers who they are, what they're trying to do, what the difficulties are, you know, what the challenges are facing, what are they afraid of? Find people in the oil yeah. and gas industry, you know, who are, who are facing the same kind of thing. I mean, Exxon is, Exxon isn't going to go away, you know what I mean? So, so yeah. who are the people in there who are trying to change it? And, and I think those kinds of stories, well told, they're not easy to get to. They will take years to develop those sources, can be very helpful. Mm -hmm.